Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here is the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I'm pleased to welcome a former speechwriter for Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin, uh, who has also written some things for President Donald John Trump. He's a columnist and a novelist. He's the author of The Rain, which won the Christian Writers Association Best Historical Fiction Award, as well as of Going Green. And his new novel is also an historical thriller based on true events. It's called Moonshine Over Georgia. It's my honor to welcome to Core Principles, Mr. Chris Skates. How are you doing, Chris? Good, Clay. Thank you for having me on. Well, before we get into your new book, Moonshine Over Georgia, I want our audience to get to know you, Chris. So could you share some of your background with us? Sure. So I was a chemist at Electric Energy Incorporated over across the river. I, I was a station chemist there for 25 years, supervised lab, did some engineering projects. Um, but I've always loved writing. And I, I had some college professors that encouraged me to become a writer. But I just thought, well, I'm going to end up making $10,000 a year somewhere. And so I, I, I thought if I major in chemistry, I can always get a job. So I never it was not about some big passion for chemistry. It was just strictly pragmatic. But I kept writing. I wrote a journal, never showed it to anybody. And then in 1995, my grandfather, the one that this book is about, passed away. And uh, I wrote a short, a short story about the two of us. And uh, I just printed it out on printer paper and took it to our family reunion. And uh, people just really went over the moon about it. They said, this is incredible writing. They said, you got to try to get this published. Well, I'd never even thought about getting something published, didn't know how to do it. But in the meantime, I had met another chemist. Chemists have meetings once a year and uh, national meetings. And I met this guy who was a trout fisherman, fly fisherman, and he wrote fly fishing articles and for magazine. So he took me under his wing and he taught me how to uh, submit for publication. And he told me, grow a thick skin. You're going to get rejected a hundred times before you get accepted. Well, the first magazine I submitted that story to bought it for $200. So I was like, holy smokes. So they sent me 10 copies of the magazine and the $200 check and the artwork they put with my article just took my breath away. It was really well done. And it was the center that was their 30th anniversary edition. Uh, the magazine's called Turkey Call, which may sound funny to your audience, but they have half a million subscribers. Um, and they made me their centerfold article of their 30th anniversary edition. And I instantly had the, the bug. I was going to be a writer then. So I said, let me see if I can do it again. So I wrote another story, submitted it. Uh, same thing. First magazine I submitted to bought. So I was like, okay, I'm Ernest Hemingway. I, I can't lose. Well, then my third article, I went through the rejection process and I had one editor tell me, you have absolutely no talent. Never contact me again. But uh, I knew better than that because I'd already sold two articles. So I just kept standing in the batter's box and taking my cut. Long story short, I published about 30 articles. Uh, then I decided to see if I could get a chemistry article published in one of the chemistry trade journals and succeeded at that a few times. And it was sort of became like fishing. Let me see what I can do next. You know? So one day on the way to work, uh, I was carpooling to EEI and I told my carpool partner, I said, you know, I just read a John Grisham novel. I think I could do that. I could write a novel. He said, go for it. So 
I started praying that I would get a story. The Lord, give me a story to tell. That was my prayer for probably a year. And I started this book, Moonshine Over Georgia, and never got past maybe two or three pages. I just writer's block. I didn't know how to write a book. And so I kind of stuck it in a drawer and said, oh, well, uh, but I kept praying, give me a story to tell. And one night, a gentleman that goes to church with me said, hey, you know, I've had an idea for a book for 30 years, but I'm not a writer. He said, I wrote the first sentence, and that was as far as I ever got. And he said, I'm never going to finish it. He said, would you listen to the concept? I said, sure. So he said, the concept is Noah's Ark. He said, everything you see about Noah is Noah with his arm around a giraffe, and they're singing happy little children's song. It's a pop-up book. He said, but it couldn't have been like that. If the Bible is true, I believe it is, and so did he, then it was the most terrifying experience in human history. All life on the planet being wiped out. So I said, okay, you got my attention. Let me see the sentence. So he hands me this little piece of paper, and it said, we covered our ears to block out the screams. And I instantly said, I'll write your book. So we wrote The Rain uh, he, with him as co-author because it was his concept and I used a lot of his research and uh, did pretty well with it. Sold about 3,500 copies in 15 different countries. And I got postcards from around the world. Uh, I got a postcard from Saudi Arabia, Czechoslovakia. Um, really a great experience. Of course, in your mind, you think, okay, we're going to the New York Times bestsellers list. And then that doesn't happen. But So then went on and wrote two more books. Well, when I wrote Going Green, by then I had gone mostly my early part of my career was steam chemistry and boiler chemistry, which is very complex. People don't realize that. But then you got sucked more and more into the environmental world because the environmental regulations were just all consuming. So I had to go to an EPA Region 5 meeting and they introduced a new regulation we were going to have to adhere to called 316B of the Clean Water Act. Fish impingement. And they said, we believe that when you pour cooling water into your power plant, the pumps that pump the cooling water are sucking in little minnows and killing them. And so you have to put in uh, $25 million worth of cooling towers to stop that from happening. Or you have to prove to us that you're not hurting little minnows. And I told them that day, the average flow velocity of our pumps coming into the plant are 0.5 feet per second. The average flow velocity in the Ohio River, where we take cooling water from, is 0.8 feet per second. So any self-respecting minnow that spends his life darting around in the Ohio River can dart away from our pumps anytime he wants to. Well, we don't believe it. So $500,000 and two marine biologists later, we proved that that was the case. But the rule was so asinine that when we were on our way home, I said, you know, we are experiencing... And I was prophetic. This was 2008. I said, we are experiencing a death by a thousand green cuts. And I said, we cannot be this stupid as a nation. There has to be something sinister driving all these rules. So I said, I'm going to write a novel about it. And the guy carpooling with me that day said, you can't write an intriguing novel about environmental regulations. I said, no, I can't. I think I can. So I ended up, that was on that book. I, I wrote Going Green disastrous title. It was a terrible marketing idea to do that title because the people that I was really trying to talk to would see the title going green and be repelled by it. They thought I was trying to teach them how to go green. I was trying to be cute and sarcastic, but I was too cute by half. Sounds very much like uh, Michael Crichton's State of Fear, however, and uh, that, that, that title set a hook. 
the only thing is Michael Crichton was a physician and I was working in power generation. So I had a little bit more insider knowledge on the green stuff. So uh, anyway, I, I got an actual book deal on that. And uh, then I got myself invited onto the Rush Football program. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a life-changing moment for me. And it would have been, except for my publisher went bankrupt. So I end up with my book locked in a warehouse and I had to tell the Limbaugh people, and they said, sorry, you're canceled. We can't have you on the show, and then our listeners can't even go find your book. So that ship sailed, but I ended up settling with the publisher, and they gave me, I think it was 3,000 to 5,000 copies of my own book. So now i got a garage full of books. So I'm like, okay, how am I going to sell these darn things? And I'm, I'm selling them out of the trunk of my car like Grisham did with The Time to Kill. Only I didn't have the agent walk up to me and give me a book deal. That never happened. Um but I ended up, I said, well, I'll start a political column. So I somehow conned Paducah Sun and let me write a column. But I wrote about two and made uh, them mad because I wrote a column that was very complimentary of Matt Bevin. And that didn't jive with their political stance at the time. So we had a mutual decision that I wouldn't write for anymore. They weren't paying me anyway. And uh, so then I went over to West Kentucky Star. And they let me write what I wanted to write, and I uh, really appreciate it. And I wrote for probably a year, 18 months. And the column ended up taking a life of its own. Uh, I got picked up by townhall.com, Red State. I worked with Eric Erickson a lot. Um, and so one day I'm looking for something to write a column about, and I hear about Matt Bevin coming to Paducah. So I said, I'm going to get an interview with this guy. And I did. And we were supposed to talk for 15 minutes, and we ended up talking for a couple of hours. Um, just saw the world the same, had a lot of the same ideas, had read a lot of the same historians. And um, so long story short, over over the course of time, and it was several months later when he decided to run for governor, because I actually met him during the Senate campaign. And uh, he asked me to be on his transition team for energy to help find the Secretary of Energy. So I was on his pre- and post-election transition team. And, and part of the break was, there weren't people beating down the door to be on Matt Bevin's transition team. If you'll recall, during that primary season, nobody thought he had a chance. And uh, so that helped me get my foot in the door. And um, so then he, we win the primary, and by gosh, we win the election. And so now I'm on the post-election transition team, which was a completely different thing. Talk about drinking from a fire hose. And uh, so I ended up meeting our future Secretary of Energy, a man named Charles Stanley, who's become a dear friend of mine and just a, a wonderful guy. And um, then I ended up getting appointed as Governor Bevin's advisor and speechwriter to the extent that he had a speechwriter because he was such a great extemporaneous speaker. I wrote a lot of beautiful speeches that never got used. But, you know, he'd have them in his vest, in his blazer pocket. And he'd, he'd say a few lines here and there. Sometimes he'd give the whole speech. But, um I wrote a lot of, of uh, official correspondence for him because a governor doesn't have time to sit and write letter after letter. So I wrote a lot of his letters, and proclamations, all that kind of stuff. So it was great, great writing. And somewhere in that time period, I met my agent that I have now, Alex Boyd. Alex is a kind of a legend in conservative publishing. He was the Buckley brothers agent, uh, William and his brother. And, um, He's mainly a nonfiction guy, but he, he took me on and uh, he looked at the manuscript for Moonshine Over Georgia. And Alex always communicates in one sentence emails, usually with no punctuation. And he says, needs polish, rewrite. 
and send back to me. And I was, this was 2018. Fast forward, I've served the governor for a couple of years. And I'm like, how dare he? This is my art. So I pouted for about two or three weeks. And then I decided to get the manuscript out. I had actually written Moonshine Over Georgia in 2015. And uh, when I started reading it, I, by then I had been a gubernatorial writer for two years. I was a much better writer than I was in 2015. So I read about five pages. And I was like, gosh, he's right. This is rough as a cob. So I did a total rewrite in 2018 and made it a much better book. And uh, so he and I started shopping it. And, but if I don't want to go off on too many rabbit trails, but I want to go back to Going Green for a minute. I sold a copy of Going Green to a guy at a tea party convention in Phoenix, Arizona. I sold just enough books to make my airfare back and I lost money on the food. <laughs> but I sold one book to a guy, didn't know him, but he worked for the Heritage Foundation. He read it and finished it that weekend when on the plane and back when he got home, put a yellow post-it note on it and said, guys, this is a great book. You need to read it. Left it in the break room at the Heritage Foundation headquarters. The next person that picked it up was the vice president of the Heritage Foundation, a lady named Becky Norton Dunlop. I had the sense, I had the sense to put a business author business card in each book. So she had my phone number. She read the book. She gave it to her husband, got him to read the book. Uh, they called me one day. I'm coming home from EI. I'm still a chemist at EI. This is before the governor's office. She said, Mr. Skates, just want you to know we read your book. We absolutely love it. And if you're ever in D.C., we'd love to take you to dinner. I said, I thanked him profusely. I said, I'm so honored. I said, I don't know when I would ever be in D.C., but if I am, I'll call you. Well, little do I know, I'm going to meet Matt Bevan and get appointed. So I went to a National Governors Association meeting in D.C. Now, fast forward, I'm back in the, the call happened in like 2010. I'm in D.C. in like 2017, 18. So I called him. I said, hey, you guys remember invite me to dinner? Yeah, we remember. What hotel are you in? I told them. They said, we'll pick you up at 6 o'clock. Or, or we were going to eat there at the event. It was actually at CPAC. So um, only then did I Google the, the two of them. And then I realized they were undersecretaries for Ronald Reagan his whole eight years. She was undersecretary of interior. He was undersecretary of agriculture. And while we were eating that day, I said, hey, can I ask you guys a question? They said, yeah. I said, did you ever sit around the Oval Office and brainstorm with Ronald Reagan? And they said, yeah, sure, all the time. That was our job. And I was like, yes. And I'm out to dinner with them, you know. And one of the highlights of my writing career was that day, she said, Mr. Skates, we dealt with the environmental groups up close and personal our entire time in the Reagan administration. And I have continued to, in my post-administration work, and the plot of your book, you nailed it. And that really gave me chill bumps because I was just a guy working at a power plant, spitball. But my theories were pretty, pretty much dead on. So the reason I tell you that backstory is January 1st of this year, I've been shopping moonshine over Georgia forever. I had let George and Becky Dunlop read the manuscript back in 18 when I rewrote it. And they loved it. Becky called it the best book she'd ever read. So they called me January 1st of this year and they said, we believe in you. Moonshine over Georgia is too good not to be published. So we want to invest in you getting it published. So we're partnered in that. And uh, that's how I was able to bring Moonshine over Georgia to the public. 
Well, very good. Let's talk a little bit about Moonshine Over Georgia now. Uh, it's based on true events. Your grandfather's the protagonist. Uh, it takes place in the 1940s. Uh, please tell our listeners how you had access to these stories of these true events. Was it just direct communication, uh, stories that he would tell you? Yeah, most of it was. My grandfather was the most important male figure in my life. We were just very, I've never had a relationship before or since as close as the one with my grandfather. We liked all the same hobbies. He got me into hunting and fishing and my dad wasn't into any of those things. And, um, so I just, I hung on his every word. I spent summers and Christmas breaks with him and every weekend I could. We never, we only lived close to him for a couple of years in my childhood. We moved, I've moved 43 times. That's one of the reasons I'm a storyteller. And uh, so, but any, any chance I got, I was with my grandpa and he would tell me stories about it. And uh, he was a World War II generation type. He didn't just say, oh, I was this and I did that. And I did. It was little snippets. And uh, you had to pull information about him. And he was especially reluctant to brag on himself. But he did love to tell you about how he found a still, where he found a still, some of the tracking that was involved, a few of the funny anecdotes. And there were a lot of those. So when in 1977, I think it was, the book Murder in Coweta County came out. It became a New York Times bestseller. And it was about the murder that's central to my book, which is the murder of a man named Wilson Turner by a guy named John Wallace. John Wallace was sort of a local, almost like a mob boss. He ran an entire county. And um, so my grandfather was... in investigating both of those gentlemen for moonshine making long before the murder took place. And uh, so he told me a lot about it and we would drive by locations that were involved in it. They would jog his memory and he'd tell a, a story about it. And, um, so when murder in Coweta County came out, I couldn't wait to read it. I was like 12 years old and uh, I'm reading it one day and I read the whole book in two days. It was really rare for me as a kid. And, um, he saw me one day, I was at his house, and he was sweeping in the den, I can still see him. And he kind of hit me on the leg with the broom, and he said, boy, what are you reading that crap for? And I said, Pop, you're in this book, and he was, he's in it a couple places. And, and uh, I said, it's awesome. And he said, I don't think we said awesome back then, but something like that. And uh, he said, that lady don't know nothing. He said, she was supposed to come interview me, and she never showed up. He said, uh, come back here, he said, I'll tell you about that story. So he got, he got I'm gonna show you this, I know you're not on video, but he got this box. He went to his bedroom and he got this box out of a closet. And uh, in it, he had all kind of papers. Unfortunately, now about half of them he burned the month before he died. I think to protect some informants. But there was a handwritten note in there from the killer, John Wallace. And it said, Agent Miller, it is urgent that we speak. Meet me at my barn at midnight. Come alone. That meeting is what's depicted on the cover my book because that was integral to the entire investigation murder in Coweta County never mentions to me never mentions any of my grandfather's intense investigative work which he was key in the conviction and so for whatever reason he the, the author of murder in Coweta County chose not to tell his side of the story and, and of course then they made a movie out of that book in 1983 uh, starring Andy Griffith as the killer I think that's the only time he's played a killer and Johnny Cash as the sheriff. But again, my, my grandfather was totally left out of it. So my grandfather didn't really care about that. What my grandfather cared about was he had another informant, an African-American gentleman named Mark Anthony. 
And Mark Anthony risked his life to inform in this case. Uh, and he got A, no credit, and B, none of the reward. And I don't want to tell you why, because that'll spoil our story. Well, I, I know why, having read the, the story. Uh, it really is effective. With listeners, when you become readers of this book, you're going to love Mark Anthony because uh, he's wise beyond his years. And it's kind of tragic what that wisdom reveals has to be the course of action that they take. But uh, it's very effective, very emotional and moving. Thank you. Thank you. And that's what bothered my grandfather until the day he died in 1985 was how Mark Anthony was treated. And Mark Anthony and my grandfather stayed friends the rest of their lives. Um, My grandfather would not tell me who Mark Anthony was until he found out that Mark Anthony had passed away in 93 and then my grandfather did tell me and made me promise never to reveal his real name mark anthony is a pseudonym and uh then my grandfather passed away two years later so i wanted to tell mark anthony's story but i also wanted to give my grandfather credit for the very difficult and expert detective work that he did uh to bring the conviction about Yes, this is. There's a lot of procedural aspects here, a lot of legwork, literal legwork. And in addition to being a thrilling sort of crime novel, Moonshine Over Georgia by Chris Gates, uh, listeners, it makes some impactful philosophical points. Uh, For example, I learned some things about Blaise Pascal that I was fascinated to discover. He wasn't just a mathematician. and Chris, you, you cleverly weave a bit of his significant philosophy into the story. Was that more like bonus content or had you had in mind that that's sort of the purpose? You want to add some of this philosophy as well as a reason to tell the stories. First of all, thank you for picking up on that, because that is the core of the entire book. And uh, it's a great story about good old boys and moonshine and a really intriguing murder case with really intriguing characters based on real life people. But the story is not a 1946 murder mystery. The story is a 2023 Christian walk book. And, and uh, I'm going to read that quote from Blaise Pascal in just a minute, but to answer your question, I'm an instinct writer. So that means in order for me to produce anything, and, and it's not the most efficient way to write a book, I have to stare and look at a white sheet of paper sometimes for an hour and the story has to start coming. And what I when with this story, I had 150 pieces of a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and I had to connect them. And in some cases, like the Upson County liquor gang case that's in the book and the murder case actually happened three years apart, but I wanted them to happen in the same summer because it just makes a really fast paced uh, tale. So there's a lot of truth in the book, but there's, fiction connects it. I always describe it as drying in a house. So you've got the two by fours and the roof up and, and that's the facts that I had. And then I created a house with carpet and drapes and paintings and furniture. And that's the fiction. So when I was writing the book and going through the creative process, the blaze Pascal quote emerged. I didn't go in thinking about it. It emerged as the story developed in my mind. And I'll read the quote here in just a minute because it became really jarring for me as a writer. I wrote the book in 2015. I rewrote it in 2018. All that time thinking that the Blaise Pascal wrote, quote, was about the contrast between my grandfather and John Wallace the killer. But only this year, after I produced an audio book 
and listen to a voice actor who's a total pro, by the way. He's great. My, he is great. Yeah. Only after I listened to him read my own words did I realize that the Blaise Pascal quote and the core of the book is about me. It's not just about my grandpa versus a killer. It's about my sin nature versus my attempts to walk in Christ. So may I read the quote? Please do. First it says, and this is my words, for all the heroes who remain true to the call. That was my grandfather. And then Blaise Pascal wrote, what a chimera then is man. What a novelty. What a monster. What a chaos. What a contradiction. What a prodigy. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, a sink of uncertainty and error, the glory and shame of the universe. Only when I listened to the audiobook did I realize that's my own story. On the one hand, I'm capable of doing what Christ would have me to do and serve him and serve other people. And on the other hand, I'm, I'm capable of the most heinous sin, even in the midst of that grace. And uh, so it's a 2023 story. It's not really a 1946 story. It's an every year story because that nature does not change. And that grace from God is new every day. Thank the Lord. Well, we're, we're sounding like we're talking about a philosophy book now. Uh, listeners, when you get and read uh, Moonshine Over Georgia by Chris Gates, you're going to get that as, uh, as a great bonus. But it is also a thriller, and it is thrilling. And uh, the, the audio book uh, is super well done as well. It really is a pro voice actor, and he gives uh, legitimate believable voices to the characters well we're going to shift from philosopher to philosopher because now uh when you sent me chris uh a document before i even got your book to read and to listen to uh, you quoted alexander solzhenitsyn uh, who had spoken boldly about the need for courageous men to stand against and never participate in lies. And that has been actually a recurring theme from the beginning of Core Principles podcast. I interviewed Rod Dreher on his book, Live Not by Lies, that was inspired entirely by Solzhenitsyn early in this program. I wanted to ask you then, Chris, uh, were there some other influences on you uh, that are unseen and not obvious? Yes, primarily. So on my father's side, here's a contrast for you. The grandfather that the book is about and that my first short story about is the one I was so close to, my Georgia grandfather, C.E. Miller. My other grandfather was Raymond Skates. I'm named after him. My name is Raymond Christopher Skates. Guess what Raymond Skates did for a living? He was a moonshiner and a bootlegger in St. Louis. The, the two of them never met, never knew each other. Um, and I'm just starting to unpack his story. He was a very violent man. Um, had a horrific childhood, but I've only in the last two weeks found out, I found his high school yearbook on Ancestry.com. I didn't know he ever attended high school. So his freshman year, I found this photograph of him and he looks so innocent and he's already had a very hard life at that point. But he says in there, I love literature. I had no idea. He was in the penitentiary multiple times. I never knew he had a love for literature. And he also says, I hope to someday become an architect. So he had hopes and dreams. So 
I plan to write his story too. And the title of that book will be called Sins of the Father. So his wife, my paternal grandmother, was a Polish Jew. She got out of Poland long before Hitler came. Her, her dad moved to America for economic reasons. But she had distant cousins who were caught up in the Holocaust. So she was a really hard as nails, tough old lady. I had a Georgia grandma who was a loving, storytelling, humorous. She's Rose in my book. Bible thumping churchgoer. And I had a Jewish grandma who was a brawler, um, bawdy, um, really hilarious, but tough as nails. And she would sit me on her knee when I was five years old and tell me about the Nazis and what they did to Poland. And she would say things like, you're a quarter Jew. They would have put you in the oven. That's hard for a five-year-old to hear. But she shaped me. She began to form my opinions about the left versus the right and about conservatism versus leftism and its child liberalism. And so I became a political conservative by the time I was 10. Uh, when a lot of kids were out playing ball, when, when it came time, I watched the Watergate hearings. And I wasn't so sure I didn't agree with Nixon. That's how, that's how far I was. And that's actually not that radical of an opinion. If you look at the outworking of what happened when the Pentagon Papers were published, uh, there were a lot of people killed because of that. So you, you, can, you can even link it to the Khmer Rouge if you want to go that far. I'm not sure I, I would make that leap, but you could. So I became a political conservative. Even my dad's conservative, but I'm considerably more conservative than him. My Georgia grandfather was a big Democrat. So that was the one thing we disagreed on throughout my life. He was a huge Jimmy Carter fan. I didn't like Jimmy Carter from the very beginning. Um, but yeah, my, my, my Jewish grandfather exposing me to the mindset of the left. And then it's all steeped in godlessness helped me to find Solzhenitsyn, helped me to find Pascal, um, and, and help just inform my worldview and shape my worldview as a Christian conservative. All right. We are talking with Chris Skates about his new novel, Moonshine Over Georgia. Chris, one of my favorite parts of your new book, uh, Moonshine Over Georgia, is about two-thirds of the way through. It's a chapter you call Pondering, and your grandfather has just been through an intense series of events that almost had a catastrophic impact. And he takes a moment to reflect on his situation, his mission, and how his actions are affecting himself and his family. And it made me reflect on a theme in some other stories having to do with the futility of trying to perfect this broken world. We'll get to that in a moment. But I want to ask you, how did you strike this balance in the story? It's a thrilling action, adventure, crime story, and this thought-provoking, settled, uh, deep, thoughtful, philosophical musing. How do you make that balance? When, when I'm writing a book, it's funny that you, you picked up on the fact of where that chapter falls. About a third to a halfway through, I start to have long conversations with my characters offline. Uh, why did you do this? Why were you, why did you keep doing this job, Pop, when you were only making $2,500 a year and grandma wanted you out of that dangerous life? 
And I thought back on all the things we talked about when we were, you know, that's a great thing about hunting and fishing. You're together for hours in the quiet and you have a lot of conversations. And so that's how I came up with that chapter. I know that something happened in his boyhood that traumatized him against alcohol and drinking. Now, one thing I'd like the listeners to understand, I'm not even 100% saying that everything my grandfather thought about moonshine was 100% correct. I am somewhat sympathetic to the anti-government, I'm a free man and I can make moonshine if I want to. I'm I'm somewhat sympathetic to it. I'm also sympathetic to the fact that even though I'm not much of a drinker myself, if an adult wants to have an alcoholic drink, that's totally their business. My grandfather didn't see it that way. So I was trying to search through my memories of what would have motivated him. And that's when I came up with the pondering chapter where you reflect back on his boyhood. And I, I want to write a prequel and a sequel to Moonshine Over Georgia. The prequel will cover his boyhood because one of the things that jumped out at me, and I, I went down to the South, I went to Georgia and looked at all the crime scenes several times. And I went to Florida where he was born and, and walked around and just soaked that in. He lived in a completely different world than we've ever experienced. So he, he was born in 1902. And he had to hunt and fish as a six-year-old to survive. He had five sisters. His mother died in childbirth. Uh, they were in a single-parent home. His father needed him to help provide meat for the table. So he, ter- he turned him loose in the woods at seven years old. And anything from a possum to a bunny rabbit to a quail, whatever he could hunt, that's what they consumed. So that's how he became an absolute expert marksman, because they could only afford so many shotgun shoots. And every shot mattered. And uh, he literally lived in the woods. And if I may, just an anecdote that helped me grasp this. He and I were watching a nature program. I was an adult, I and mean, I was in my 20s. And it was about alligators in Florida. And they were, it was a really scary documentary. And I said, Pop, didn't you tell me that you ran around behind your coon dog when you were six and seven years old with a lantern at night down there in Florida? He said, sure did, all the time. And I said, didn't you, did you have like snake boots or something to protect you from the snakes and alligators? And he looked just shocked. He said, snake boots? Snake boots? Boy, I didn't even own a pair of shoes till I was 12 years old. So he ran around. I said, weren't you worried about snakes and alligators? And he goes, this is very telling. Now, listen to this. He said, well, no. He said, I guess I should have. He said, but I didn't have no sense. I was about half wild. He really was. He was about half wild. And that enabled him as a revenue officer to do things that I'm a hunter, but I would never be capable of doing the things he did. I would not want to be going at a, to a still deep in the Georgia woods against a bunch of guys with guns. He did it for 20 years and was really, really good at it. So the contrast in the world that he grew up in and the world that he passed away in is monumental. I guess that would be the highest rate of change in world history, that time period from 1902 to 1995. Um, So that's a story in itself that I want to call education on fish prairie fish prairie is where he lived in florida and and i want to teach the reader that and plus those are just incredibly rich stories some of his childhood but but part of his childhood something happened with alcoholism that made him determined 
to wipe it out in his community when he got to be an adult. And uh, so a lot of that section is fictionalized, but I would like to say this about the, the character. He has a flashback in the book without spoiling it for the reader. And one of the, the, the young girl he meets in his flashback is called Gal Young. That name did not originate with me. That came from a Pulitzer Prize winning author named Marjorie Keenan Rawlings, who wrote a book that won the Pulitzer Prize called The Yearling about a boy that had a pet deer. It was turned into a movie with Gregory Peck. And the only reason more people aren't aware of it is because it competed that year in the Academy Awards with Gone with the Wind. So Gone with the Wind kind of trumped it, but it was the second most popular movie that year. And that book was very popular with guys in World War II. A lot of them took that, the yearling through the war with. But Marjorie Keenan Rawlings lived about six miles from where my grandfather grew up. And his sister and Marjorie Rawlings became really good friends. And if you ever get a chance to go, she lived in a little town called Cross Creek. There's been a movie made about her by the same title, Cross Creek. She has a state park named after her where you can tour her home. Absolutely worth the trip. History happened in that little cottage. And um, so she had a short story that won an award called Gallium. And I, I put that name in my book as a tribute to Marjorie Keenan Rawlings. But it also was my attempt to try to explore my grandfather's mind and figure out what drove you because you were really driven. Outstanding. So listeners, you can tell that you're going to want to become readers of uh, this great new book, Moonshine Over Georgia by Chris Skates. It is deep and rich, and uh, it's a lot more than just this on the surface, this uh, thrilling crime novel, although it is that. Um, now, getting to those other stories that, that this aspect of Moonshine Over Georgia brought to my mind, one of them's going to seem a little silly. But the other one is uh, more obviously connected and significant. Uh, the silly one is the 1989 movie Batman. At one point in that story, the leading lady, uh, her name's Vicki Vale, Kim Basinger portrayed her. She is ushered into the Batcave by Alfred the Butler, and she challenges Bruce Wayne about why he keeps trying to root out all the crime in Gotham City. And Michael Keaton does a really good job. He's really dry. He's just, uh, he says, it's not a perfect world. And she immediately replies, it doesn't have to be a perfect world. Now, do you think, Chris, that uh, your grandfather was trying to perfect his part of Georgia? Or was he just trying to strike a balance between his duty to his job and his duty to his family? Do you have any insight and in, uh, his thoughts about that? Boy, that's a great that's a great metaphor. I never I, I didn't think of that, but I saw the movie and, and you're right. I do think not only was he trying to perfect his world, I tried to perfect my world by leaving a lucrative career as a chemist at a power plant and going to work for a governor. And I was thwarted. Governor Bevin was thwarted. President Trump was thwarted. Um, and now I've got a very different perspective after five years in government than I had when I wrote the first draft of this book. And I think my grandfather ended up with a very different perspective is that trying to perfect the world is indeed futile. The only one that can do that is Jesus Christ. and He hasn't done it yet. He's not finished yet. Um, so yeah, I think he was. My mother has told me, sadly, my mother who is Judy in the book uh, has pretty advanced dementia now, but she didn't when I wrote the first draft of this book and we went through it together and she was just, very emotional about it. She told me, 
I let her be the first reader of the of the original manuscript. And it took her a couple of weeks and she called me and she was sobbing. And she said, Chris, it's not like you wrote a story about my father. It's like you channeled my father. Wow. There were there are scenes in that book that I lived through that I didn't remember. She said, I can tell you hung on my father's every word. She said, you put me right back there. And it was like you were there witnessing, which I think is kind of a connection between me and my grandfather's how that happened. But yeah, I, she said that he would come home many, many nights and cry at what he'd seen, broken families, and especially the children. And I talk about this in the author's note. He was really impacted by the damage that was being done to children because there was not a social safety net. As flawed as the family and children's services departments are in every state, it's better than nothing. And the kids back then had nothing. Well, that leads us directly, Chris Skates, into the other example. So I'm going to present that one now and get your comment. This other example that that scenario in the book made me think about is this new movie called Sound of Freedom. Yes. And listeners, if you have not seen Sound of Freedom, see it. I can't tell you it has any entertainment value because it doesn't, but it's a significant piece of work. It's extraordinarily well-made. It's an important, important story. Well, the pivotal moment in that movie, for me, I think probably for the producers of it as well, the storytellers, was when the Department of Homeland Security agent named Tim Ballard uh, was being congratulated for having rounded up and arrested so many perpetrators of crimes against children over the course of his DHS career. But the person who was congratulating Agent Ballard asked him this piercing question. He said, along with these, you know, 100 plus bad guys and perpetrators that you've arrested, how many children have you rescued? And the answer was zero. And that was the catalyst for the rest of the true story in Sound of Freedom. Uh, and in Moonshine Over Georgia, your grandfather recognized, as you said, that the damage done to children of the folks who were overtaken by the moonshine, as well as the damage done by the criminals who produced and peddled it. And so what could you tell our listeners about how those harms to children really motivated your, your grandfather? You started to tee that up. Uh, I interrupted to make yeah. this point, but please. No, I'm glad you did. Um, so when I knew I wasn't a writer, yet. I didn't even know that I had a writer in me, but I was about 11 or 12 and was with my grandparents and the kind of the routine for the summers was get up early and go fishing, uh, then come home and work in the garden. He had a huge garden. He fed an entire family with distant cousins and everything out of his garden and uh, work in the garden till lunchtime. Then my grandmother would cook this big Southern lunch and then we'd sit and watch Andy Griffith after lunch. So we're watching Andy Griffith one day and my grandfather became agitated at a character named Rafe Hollister, who was only on about five episodes. He's got a great baritone voice. And, um, but he's the Mayberry era moonshine. And the comedy skit was he was providing Otis with, with hooch, white lightning. And my grandfather just kept squirming in his chair and he finally reached up and just abruptly turned off the TV. And I said, Pop, what's wrong? Aren't we going to watch the show? And I looked in his eyes and he was tearing up and his chin was beginning to quiver. And he said, it wasn't like that boy. There was nothing funny about the moonshine business. 
And he leaned forward and he said, you think you've heard a little child cry? He said, wait till you drag their daddy out of some ditch somewhere, covered in his own vomit. Maybe he's peed his pants. And you take him home to some shack. He said, you have no idea how poor people were back then. And when you get him home, his little children are running around out in the yard with maybe hardly any clothes on. Their bellies distended from hunger. And they haven't eaten in two days. And daddy just spent all the money they had on a gallon of moonshine. By the way, a gallon of moonshine in 1946 was $20. That's a real number. That was a month's salary for some people. So he said, and then those children would see me and they didn't know me. They just were frantic and they would hold on to my leg and wail. He said, that's when you've heard a child cry. And he said, and I couldn't help them all. He said it about three or four times. And, and I, I had no idea the sound of freedom was going to come out the same time my book was going to come out. I also had no idea that my book was coming out on the 75th anniversary of the real life murder trial and the 40th anniversary of the movie. That was all just good Lord, I guess, but it did. And you're right. Uh, and that pull of what he saw happening to the kids as motivated as he was by the childhood incident, he got more and more motivated. And then he did struggle with, and I learned this from witnesses, not so much from him because he would always tell me what I wanted to know about tracking and finding the stills. And, but when it came, I was always fascinated as a young boy. Did you ever shoot anybody? Did you ever fight anybody? He would shut down. I found out about the fact that he was willing to get physical with the suspect from living witnesses that I interviewed. And I was shocked when I found out how physical he was willing to get. But he was one of uh, one moonshiner that I got to talk to in a nursing home in Panama City Beach, Florida, 93 years old when we did the interview. Clear minded as he could be. He was arrested by my grandfather in 46. He said, your grandfather was the hardest, toughest man I ever knew. He was absolutely fearless. He was incorruptible, but he was also fair. He said there were many times where he arrested guys at a still and he knew they had kids and he'd say, go home for a month. Take care of your family. Get your affairs in order. Meet me at the jail one month from today. And he said, I don't know of one person that ever stood him up. And I knew my grandfather had done that. So he had told me about that. But it was really interesting to hear it from a guy on the other side of the law. So that was who he was. He was fair. He had a humor about him all through. Um, but, yeah, if, if it came time to, to throw down, he'd do that, too. You mentioned the the wailing of the children. It's interesting that uh, just before you and I came online to do this interview this morning that we're conducting this interview, uh, I was watching a brief clip of an interview with Jim Caviezel, who played DHS agent Tim Ballard in the movie Sound of Freedom. And somebody had posted uh, that a very powerful group was going to make sure that Jim Caviezel suffers and maybe dies as a result of shining light on this thing. And Jim Caviezel uh, looks at the camera after he's read this thing and he says, all right, you all have no power over me. Uh, I belong to the Lord. Basically, he said, you haven't heard the screaming of these children. And I learned I didn't realize that I, when they staged some of these events to recreate for that movie, they actually, there were some trafficked children who were rescued as a result of the making of that movie. So it's incredible. He says, I've heard these screams. There's no, there's no turning back now. This is not 
theoretical to me anymore. So uh, it's very impactful, uh, you know, yeah. and uh, it wasn't obviously pertaining to moonshining, but uh, when, when Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, uh, better that a millstone be tied around one's neck and to be cast in the sea, than they corrupt these little children, uh, that obviously should be a motivator for anybody. Yeah. Uh, if, if you have a chance to protect or rescue children, there's nothing going to stop you from that mission. So that's really important. Everybody, we got 10 minutes left. We have as much time as we need, I guess, but, uh, what, I, there's what was, three anecdotes I want to buy in. Please. One is I didn't know anything about trafficking until I served in the Bevan administration. And then first lady, Glenna Bevan, who was a wonderful Christian lady in her own right, tackled this issue in Kentucky as, as one of her initiatives. Uh, she was really, she spent a tremendous amount of her time on the foster care system, which needed a lot of work, and she did improve it some. We would have improved it even more if we had gotten reelected. But towards the end, she became aware of the human trafficking issue that was, as, as she looked into the foster care system, some of these foster kids had been trafficked, or, or, or some of the kids that were in without parents and needed to be adopted. And so she took on the human trafficking issue. And I went to some meetings with her where she met with victims. And these were victims that were older. They were teens. Uh, they had been through quite a bit of therapy by the time we met with them. And you could still see the trauma in their eyes. And the stories that they relayed, I would never presume to betray their privacy by relaying it. And I've never been the same. The... I knew that the world was a dark place and I experienced it even as a child myself, but I didn't realize it was that bad. And it's really interesting. I didn't set out to write a book that had a parallel with Sound of Freedom, but I did. And then I go back to the rain. So we said the first line of that book about Noah, the rain was we covered our ears to block out the screens. So I got to the point where okay, there were a lot of people alive in the world when God brought the flood. What about the children? How do I reconcile as a Christian that God may have drowned children? And while I was struggling with that, I was coming home from work one day, I was still working on the manuscript, and I heard an interview. This was 2004. I heard an interview on National Public Radio with a representative of NAMBLA, the North American Man Boy Love Association. And they gave this person a forum to justify his behavior of molestation of boys. And I, pull, I turned the radio off and I pulled the car over. I'll, I'll tell you where I was. I was on exit 11, that wide emergency lane there. I just pulled over. I was so stunned. And then I started thinking about my book. I was like, if we're that rotten down morally, and the Bible says that God brought the flood because the thoughts of man's heart were evil continually. I said, if we're going to give a guy like this radio airtime, we won't even protect our children. We abort them every time you turn around. And it was worse back then because God brought the flood than maybe they had not protected their children to the point that there were no children left. Maybe that was the Crucible. Maybe that was the Genesis, the spark that said, God said, enough. 
And so I ended up writing a chapter about two children at the beginning of the book that are the last two children on earth. And that's how I reconciled. I'm not saying I was right. It's just an idea. But that's how I reconciled. God didn't have any children drowned because we had already destroyed the children. The culture, the wickedness had already destroyed the children. That seemed kind of far-fetched when I wrote it and put it in the rain in 2005. It doesn't seem so far-fetched now. We do have to wonder how long will God tarry. I can't see much worse than some of the things that are being revealed as happening now. And uh, it, it's just a sick, sick, depraved world. Yeah. But God is good. He's merciful. He's just. And he's gracious. Uh, listeners, I... I'm going to assume that most of you are in relationship with God through Jesus. But if you are not, there's nothing more important. Well, I, uh, as we wrap up our interview about moonshine over Georgia, the way I experienced it, I bought both the Kindle and the audiobook version so I could have sort of a multimedia immersion and the, the audiobook, uh, the voice acting is extraordinary. Um, I could see this story being told on screen also. And I wonder if you think Chris Gates, uh, is it possible this story could be optioned for uh, television streaming or movie production? I am having some conversations um, that's a long ways from an actual movie deal, but I've actually got another call this afternoon with a producer. Um, the best way to have this hit the big screens is for me to sell about a million copies of the book. And I'm not just saying that. That It's so hard to go from book to screenplay to movie because Hollywood, even like Angel Studios that did Sound of Freedom, they are going to be inundated now with books. And it costs money to convert a novel to a screenplay. So if they've got a stack of screenplays a mile high already that people want them to do, what do they need to convert my book into a screenplay? So the thing that motivates them to do that is see that it's on the bestseller list. So I'm interested to talk to this guy this afternoon, but I'll be pleasantly shocked if he goes that far. Um, now, the other way that it could happen is you have a big movie person fall in love with the book. That's happened. That happened with Where the Crawdads Sing. Don't get me started on that writing in that book but um that that can happen too but that's a much longer shot than if the book is commercially successful first so that's what i'm hoping happens and i've got a lot of stuff in the pipeline i've got a lot of book signings coming up very very difficult to sell a book I, early in my career when the rain came out i was privileged to have dinner with the gentleman that had the number one new york times bestseller that uh it was called it was an excellent book called manhunt the 12-day search for john wilkes Booth. And I, I asked him, what's the secret sauce? How did you do it? And he said, Chris, I've been on 50 television shows. I've been on about 150 radio shows. This is before podcasting. I've been in a couple hundred newspapers and magazines. And he said, and I still feel like I have to twist every arm to sell every copy. And that's been true in my experience across four books. When, when you ask a person to buy a book, you're asking them for their most precious thing. Not the $18 to the cost of the book. You're asking them for their time. Because they're going to have to spend time to read the book. That's why I did an audio book this time. I thought, well, maybe if people don't have time to read, they will listen on their commute. And, and a lot of people are doing it. So when I wrote The Rain, there were 4 million titles on Amazon Books. Today, there are 22 million. Wow. So how do you get your needle found in that haystack? And that's what I'm trying to get my arms around now. And I'm, I'm doing a number of different things. And 
learning as I go. I, I'm a really good writer. I'm not a very great marketer, but I'm having to learn. If I want my book to actually, there are people in the nether regions of Paducah that don't even know my book exists, much less Eastern Kentucky, much less South Carolina, much less Pawtucket, Rhode Island. So how do you make people aware that the book exists? I will say that this book lends itself really well to being marketed. Once I can make a person aware, I've, I've kind of been joking around lately. I said, give me two minutes with an Eskimo and an igloo and I'll sell in this book. But you got to get the two minutes. And that's what I'm working at now. Well, I'm cheering you on to success with that. And listeners, I want all of you to be readers of the, the book, Moonshine Over Georgia. It really is uh, a great read. It's uh, fast-paced, it's thrilling, and it's significant. Uh, it it will surprise you, as it did me, with what uh, emotional and even philosophical journey you're going to be on while you're on this thrilling journey to root out some corruption uh, that extends, by the way, no plot spoilers, way beyond uh, the, the scenario in Georgia. Uh, that comes through as well. Um, Well, thank you very much, Chris Gates, for being my guest on Core Principles Podcast, and God bless you. Thank you. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky, by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information, and please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.